0: Our current series is entitled Believers in Babylon, Living as Exiles in a Strange Land. As believers, we must remember that this world is not our home. We are foreigners, we are strangers living in exile. In this series, we're looking at the book of Daniel as a divine manual given to us to give us insights concerning how to live in Babylon. Babylon. Now, the book of Daniel, as we've learned, was written in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken along with other Israelites to be part of a select group to be trained in all the literature and language of the Babylonians with the goal of serving in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And after three years, they graduated, these four graduated with honors. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that they were ten times better than all the others. And what we have learned is that it was their covenant love for God that sustained them during this time of training so that they could serve for the glory of God in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Now, as they served, they never— their identity was never as Babylonian officials, but rather their identity was as children of God. Even though they lived in Babylon, their citizenship was never in the kingdom of Babylon. But rather their kingdom, their citizenship, was in the kingdom of heaven. Now this morning we come to the familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. These men now face the decision either to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's newly constructed national idol or to stand firm in faith In God alone. Now, last week we looked at chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar was being haunted by a recurring dream. Nebuchadnezzar called together a delegation of wise men in Babylon to tell him the details of his dream and its interpretation, but they could not. And because of that, the king ordered all the wise men of Babylon to be executed. And this included Daniel and his three friends. Now Daniel quickly runs to Nebuchadnezzar and asks him for time that he might seek the details of the dream and its interpretation. And after a night of prayer, the mystery of the dream is revealed to Daniel in a vision. So Daniel rushes off to Nebuchadnezzar and gives him the details of his dream and its interpretation Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God has chosen him to be an instrument of grace to explain the dream and its interpretation. Daniel explains that Nebuchadnezzar saw a great single statue and it was large, extraordinary, remarkable, and awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold and its chest and arms were made of silver. Its belly and thighs were of, made of bronze, and its legs were made of honor, of uh, iron. And then lastly, the feet, those feet, they were made of partial iron and partial clay. Daniel here reveals the mystery of the great statue, and he begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonian empire is the head of gold. He continues and tells the king that after him will rise another kingdom, the kingdom of silver, which is the Persian empire. Then there will be a third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, that will rule over the earth. This is the Greek Empire. The fourth kingdom is the kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire. And then we come to the divided nations in the feet made partially of iron and partial of clay. These divided nations are the nations of the world since the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as Nebuchadnezzar continued to look upon this great statue, the scene changes to a stone that is cut out of the mountain without hands and it strikes like a meteor out of heaven and crushes the feet of iron and clay, causing the statue to crumble into a pile of rubble. The wind blows and all the dust particles away and we see that no trace of the statue is found. But the stone. That stone that struck the statue, we see that it becomes a great mountain and fills the earth. Clearly, this is the establishment of the kingdom of Christ at his second coming, when the earth will pass away and the Lord will create a new heaven and new earth. Amen? Amen. The mystery revealed to Nebuchadnezzar is this. God orchestrates the rise and falls of kingdoms, empires, and nations. So to usher in the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. After revealing the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is promoted to be ruler over all of Babylonia, And then we see his three friends are promoted as administrators in the entire providence of Babylon. And these promotions made Daniel and his three friends chief overseers over the entire golden government of Babylon. But their allegiance was always to the rock from heaven. Their allegiance was always to the kingdom of Christ. Now I tell you this whole backstory because the first verse of chapter 3, well, it just will not make sense unless you understand the details of chapter 2. Verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, six, 60 cubits high and 6 cubics wide, and it was set up in the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Now, in in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God had identified the kingdom of Babylon as the head of gold. Now, what you probably don't know is 20 years have gone by between chapter 2 and chapter 3. 20 years have passed. And this gave Nebuchadnezzar plenty of time to ponder over that dream and to consider the statue's flaws and to address the problem. That it, the dream represented. If the statue in his dream was unstable, then Nebuchadnezzar must strengthen the statue from head to toe. Nebuchadnezzar realized that the metals of his dream, the metals represented in the statue, diminished in value from the head of gold, which is the most costly then silver, then bronze, then iron, and then those brittle feet of iron and clay. Now, unlike Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar did not focus on the rock from heaven, but rather he focused on the weakness of the statue itself. He concluded that the problem was disunity. The problem was instability. Found in those divided nations represented in those feet of clay. So Nebuchadnezzar devised a plan to construct a statue that would be a symbol of national unity and national strength. Nebuchadnezzar concluded that if the statue in his dream was unstable, then why not make a new statue that represented the dominion, power, might, and glory of Babylon? Why not construct an image of gold? Why not construct a monument to himself and to his golden government of Babylon? Why not create a symbol of strength, stability, and majesty to the peoples of the world? See, 20 years is plenty of time for him to consider the perfect location, the design, the engineering, and the construction of the monument to himself and all of his accomplishments in this image of gold. And even though the Bible doesn't give us details of Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold, we can assume, based upon his immense pride, which we'll learn about next week, that this image of gold could have resembled a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which he had seen in his dream. The image of gold is described as being 90 feet tall and 9 feet at its base and these dimensions could represent the scale that's used to construct a statue in the shape of a human. Although Nebuchadnezzar had vast wealth the the image probably wasn't solid gold. The statue was probably constructed with brick and mortar and then possibly to provide maximum security, stability, and then probably overlaid with gold plates. Regardless the image would have been majestic. And the image was erected in on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon and this plain of Dora is located six miles southwest of Babylon and which would have made it a perfect proximity convenient for all of his guests and all of his citizens. This was the same area though for which the Tower of Babel was constructed in the book of Genesis. Remember when mankind sought to make a name for themselves? And to do that, they attempted to build a tower to heaven. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wants to make a name for himself. And this was the perfect location. The location of this valley plain would have made the height of this nine-story structure very impressive. There was nothing in the surrounding landscape that would rival the statute's scope or height. One mighty king, one stable empire, and one unifying religious symbol with no competitors in sight. This was perfect for an emperor Like Nebuchadnezzar, who wanted to make his name for himself on the pages of world history. So now, the day of dedication has arrived. And Nebuchadnezzar calls for all the people to come. Most specifically, seven classifications of his government officials are to come to the dedication. Now this would have included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Every one of these officials would have sat up front with Nebuchadnezzar himself. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar puts together this international orchestra. And it's so important. It seems like it has no value. But notice that it's stated three different times in the text. This international orchestra that played all kinds of music. Why? Because this orchestra represented all the peoples and nations and languages within the empire. And then, of course, the herald loudly proclaimed that everyone must bow. Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zitter, the lyre, the harp, the the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship the image will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. This is an exercise in empire-building. Nebuchadnezzar would use this image of gold to unite the people together in national pride. With the international music playing, all the peoples of all the languages of of the Empire of Babylon were commanded to fall down in unison And worship the image of gold. Now as the command was issued, everyone could see the smoke bellowing out of the top of the furnace in the background. Obeying this command would be a demonstration of cultural, political, and religious solidarity in a pluralistic society. And it's important for us to take a moment to understand Nebuchadnezzar's command. In Nebuchadnezzar's pluralistic kingdom, people could keep and worship the gods of their own cultures and their own nations. Just as long as you you gave priority to the official god of Babylon, represented in the image of gold. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, let's celebrate our differences. (laughs) That's why I have this great international orchestra set up here. We're all different, different people, different languages. Let's celebrate, but we're all Babylonians, right? We can celebrate our differences just as long as you accept the God of Babylon as the supreme being and you worship the image for the unification of the empire like Babylon we live in a pluralistic society where views are tolerated except the view that there's only one way Strict biblical monotheism, which is the belief that there is only one God and one way to God, in our society is totally intolerable. We live in a culture where all views are accepted, except (laughs) the view that there's only one way and only one mediator between God and man and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, well, let me just tell you that will get you thrown into the fiery furnace of public opinion. But we need to understand that Christians of every generation have had to stand firm in faith one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It started in the early church when they were faced with a crisis, when they were required to recite the formula, Caesar is Lord. Giving a loyalty oath to the Roman emperor. Many Christians chose to die rather than to utter that loyalty oath. The words, Jesus is Lord, was on their lips as they were fed to the lion. Today, Christians living in communist regimes and areas dominated by ISIS are demanded to take a loyalty oath or be put to death. My point is, is that Nebuchadnezzar's command wasn't new, and it's not new today. But as we live in exile here, Christians must stand firm in faith, declaring Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, it was at this time that some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. These astrologers, well, they owed their life to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream and stopped the execution that was ordered against them. But it's clear that these astrologers wanted these Jews executed. It's clear that they had a deep-seated resentment against Daniel and his three friends. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had given them the highest positions in his golden government. And these astrologers, well, they're jealous, they're envious that these outsiders, these Jews have been given authority over the affairs of Babylon and it's been for 20 long years. And now was their window of opportunity. Notice they came forward and denounced the Jews. Now these astrologers were religious professionals. They would have been familiar with the Ten Commandments. They would have understood the Second Commandment that reads, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, thus says the Lord. Now remember, it was idolatry that caused the exile in the first place. So these boys are going to do everything imaginable to stay away from idolatry. And this word "denounce," when it says they, they came forward, forward and denounced the Jews, this is a harsh word that connotes slander and malicious accusation. Seeking to devour the accused piece by piece. It's no mild word. The point is, is that these astrologers, well, they were out for blood. They wanted these guys out of the way. They wanted their job and they wanted their positions in the golden government of Babylon. Now, maybe you've seen pictures like this in Sunday school that shows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up in the midst of the bowing Babylonians. But it probably wasn't like that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably didn't even attend the ceremony. The text tells us that they had to be summoned, that they had to be brought. And as I mentioned earlier, all the dignitaries would have been in the front row seats, VIPs. Now, the date of this ceremony would have been public knowledge for months. Now, Daniel, for some reason, is absent. Maybe he took the opportunity to take a diplomatic trip to one of the other providences. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, we see clearly that they are conscientious objectors willing to serve the golden government, but not willing to worship it. The Bible tells us that if we are reviled for the name of Christ, we are blessed. The Bible tells us that if we suffer as Christians, we should not be ashamed and know that we are glorifying God. The Bible tells us to keep a good conscience so that in the thing for which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And if there's ever a New Testament verse that correlates to Daniel chapter 3, it's that one right there. These boys kept a good conscience. These astrologers were slandering them for their good behavior in Christ. But what we'll see is those astrologers will be put to shame. I believe that this was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's mindset as they faced this divine dilemma that they were going to stand firm in faith. They loved the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength, and they were going to honor the Lord above, and they would bow to no other. And brothers and sisters, We must have this as our mindset. As we we are faced with speculations and every lofty thing that rises up against the knowledge of Christ, we must love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. We must honor the Lord above all. We will bow to no other. Amen? Amen. Now, these astrologers brought three ch- charges against this Jewish trio. First, they accused them of showing disregard for the king's authority, and then that they did not serve the king's god, and thirdly, that they would not bow to the image of gold. Now, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That you do not serve my God or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the horn, the flute, the zitter, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all the music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then he asks a peculiar question. Then what God is able to rescue you from my hand. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar has given them an opportunity to obey. The text even tells us that his attitude changes in just a moment when they refuse. So it seems that he has a sensible attitude towards them right now. and He wants to give them an opportunity to obey. And, you know, these guys have been great leaders for the last 20 years. I definitely don't want to lose them off the payroll. So the command was to worship the image, therefore showing allegiance to serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar restates the command in full as it was issued earlier. And what we see is the repetition, the, the repetition of this entire edict demonstrates that for Nebuchadnezzar, this was personal. Bowing or not bowing was not some abstract act. This was personal. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is quite happy for the gods to rule heaven. But make no mistake, he was the ruler of the world and he will be worshiped on earth now since he was the ruler of the of the of the world he asks what god is going to rescue you from my hand basically just saying turn or burn your decision boys So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you on this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. As we learned in chapter 1, these boys have said yes to so many things while they are seeking the welfare of the city, seeking the welfare of Babylon. But, as we also learned in chapter 1, they will not deny their covenant commitment to God. They will not deny their covenant love for God. And as I said, as we looked at chapter 1, You can take everything you want from me, but you can't have my love for God. Take it. But I still have the greatest treasure that you could never have. And that's how we live in exile here, is that type of covenant commitment to God. They refuse to excuse or to explain themselves. They basically says, we don't need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. (laughs) Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had asked if it was true that they were unwilling to bow. And their response leaves no question to their answer. It's true. We will not bow. So as as to the blazing furnace, They say, God is able, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and even if he doesn't, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. They believed wholeheartedly that God was able to save them from the fire. But even if he doesn't, they will stand firm in their covenant commitment to God. God is God. God is sovereign. And just as the psalmist teaches us, our God who is in heaven, well, he does whatever he pleases. Have you ever wondered why God rescues some people while allowing others to suffer and die? For example, why did God rescue the Apostle Peter from prison? Whereas in the the same chapter in the book of Acts, Herod executes the Apostle James. Why save Peter and let James die? Only God knows. Have you ever noticed that in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the chapter recognizing the heroes of the faith, at the end of that chapter, that there's a list of those who have experienced all types of miracles and deliverances, two of which occurred in the book of Daniel. While another list is given of those who experienced all types of suffering, torture, and death. And what's interesting is at the very end of that chapter and the first verse of chapter 12, both groups, those who have experienced miracles and those who have suffered death, both groups are, are commended for their faith and both groups are part of the great cloud of witnesses. What's the point? The point is is that the unifying characteristic of both groups, those who experience miracles and those who experience death, is that they stand firm in faith in God. It's important to remember that our focus always must be upon our covenant commitment to God. That's what they want to take from you. But regardless of the experience, whether we are delivered Or we die. Our prayer must always be, not my will, but thy will be done. We must pray even as Job prayed. Even though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded the strongest soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Now, this furnace was probably the one used to make the bricks for the construction of the image of gold. It would have been close by. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was hot, but the furnace was seven times hotter. The three Hebrews, notice, were wearing their festive clothing. So they, they dressed up for the dedication day. But they were bound, carried by the strongest soldiers, and thrown into the top of the furnace. As a matter of fact, there might be evidence to the fact that the soldiers, they died along the way, and the three boys just threw themselves in there. The fire was so hot that the soldiers were killed. Nebuchadnezzar he takes his seat at the bottom of the furnace for the public viewing of the burning. This would be an opening used to fuel the furnace and to give an abundance of air for combustion. And then Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and asks his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, Your Master, Majesty. He says, Well, look, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Instead of being bound, they were free. Instead of screaming in anguish, they were walking about, making no attempt to come out. Instead of three men, there are four, and one, based upon Nebuchadnezzar's assessment, looks like the son of the gods. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, this fourth person was a divine person, someone beyond human comprehension, someone more powerful than himself. Remember I told you that Nebuchadnezzar was quite happy for the gods to to rule in heaven. Even last week, his wise men told him that the gods don't dwell amongst humans, but right here, right now, in that furnace, God dwells with his people. And God dwells with you. God dwells with us. He's not absent. He's with us. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar asked, "Well, what God is able to rescue you from my hand?" <laughs> well, is the fourth man. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. This is a pre incarnate Christ. This is a Christophany, a God, a Christ appearance before his incarnation. This is not the Son of the gods. This is the Son of God. This is the one who tells us that God will never, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. As John writes in Revelation, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Thanks be to his holy name. This is our companionship with the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, God dwells with his people no matter how hot the fire is. And someone here today needs to hear that again. God dwells with his people no matter how hot the fire gets. He always dwells with his people. As the hymn writer wrote, he walks with me and talks with me. He tells me that I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have stayed in that fire until those flames became embers. Because they were in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us that type of faith. That we're willing to dwell in the midst of the fire because you are there before, until the flames become embers. We will be with you and rejoice in your presence. So many many times we focus upon how hot the fire is instead of enjoying the greatness of our companionship with Christ. Don't trade it. Don't trade it. It's something to cherish. We must ask God to give us faith. As we live in the midst of the flames and Nebuchadnezzar, now he approaches the opening and he shouts out, Servants of the Most High, come out. Now all the government officials that were named earlier, all those that Nebuchadnezzar had invited, they watched as these three guys walked out of the furnace. They saw That the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. (laughs) Are you kidding me, man? Yeah, this is great stuff, man. This is a promise of God for us. This is the fulfillment of what the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. (laughs) So we must ask the Lord to work deep in our hearts so that as we walk through the fires of this world that we will have confidence in Christ that we will not be burned. That our hair will not be singed, our clothing will not be scorched, and the smell of smoke will not be upon us. Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel to rescue his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that That the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, rubble, for there is no other God that can save in this way. Look who's bowing now. Look who is supreme now. Now, I don't think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were really relished Nebuchadnezzar's pronouncement of judgment that those who don't, that say anything against their God would be torn limb from limb and their houses made into rubble. I, I don't think that they really relished in that fact, but I'm sure that they welcomed what Nebuchadnezzar said otherwise. He states it perfectly. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except his own God. He got it. They stood firm in faith. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Yes, Jesus' promises is true. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As we close this morning, I really want to look at chapter 3 and the insights that it gives us for living like exiles in a strange land. This is the whole thing that brought me to Daniel in the first place. And so I think it's important for us to really capture these week by week First of all, we see from chapter 3 that Christians must stand firm in faith declaring that Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. Even though we live in a pluralistic society, even though we might be cast into the fiery flames of public opinion, we must stand firm in faith declaring Jesus is Lord. Second, we must seek the Holy Spirit to give us faith to confront speculations and every lofty thing that rises up against the knowledge of God. There's so many speculations, so many people think they're smarter than God and we must seek the Holy Spirit to give us faith to speak to those things. Our focus must always be on our covenant commitment to God regardless of our circumstances that surround us, our Covenant commitment to God must be number one. You can take anything, but you can't take that. As Jesus taught us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then fourthly, we must ask God to give us the faith to stand firm in the midst of the flame, no matter how hot it gets, and to enjoy his presence. Enjoy his presence. Some of you might know that I'm a Johnny Cash fan. In 1969, Johnny recorded the classic, the country classic, The Fourth Man. I remember listening to this song as my parents played Johnny's Holy Land album on that big, big stereo piece of furniture that we had in our living room. This song, The Fourth Man, describes Daniel chapter 3. And the chorus goes like this They wouldn't bend, they held onto the will of God, so we are told. They wouldn't bow, they would not bow their knees to the idol of gold. They wouldn't burn, they were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow. And they wouldn't burn. And my challenge for us today, as we live in exile here, is to seek the Lord to give us faith to stand firm and not to bend to this world's philosophies or opinions, not to bow to its idols, and to trust the fourth man, our Lord Jesus Christ, to walk through the fire with us. Stand firm in your faith in Christ alone. And his promise is, the stench of this world won't even be on you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to you today thanking you for this story of Daniel chapter 3. A familiar story to many, but important for us to review again. Lord God, work in our hearts to stand firm in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, to state that Jesus Christ is Lord and no other. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're speaking to me today. I ask you, Lord, to come into my life, to save me from my sins, to claim me as a child of God. Lord, cause me to gain citizenship in heaven through the grace found in the cross. I come to you and you alone. And as your children, Lord, we come to you today asking you to work in our hearts so that we would not bend, that we would not bow, and to thank you that we will not burn. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.